Hello there, and welcome to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. My name is Richard Frankowitz, and I'm the Youth Director here at SFBC. This week, Dr. Archie Spencer brings the next message in our series in the Book of John. Enjoy! As I say, it is good to be back in the pulpit, and it's uh, good to be here with you this morning. I want to take the first few moments to read our passage that we have before us today, because I'm an expositional preacher. I like to attend to the text of the Bible. Uh, I know, uh, and that's one of the big things that I appreciate about Rod so much, is he's such a great exegete, and I think it's probably one of the most important skills for pastors to relearn uh, in the coming generation, because more than ever in the times in which we live, our people need to know the Bible. They need to be instructed in it, and they need to take it seriously as the Word of God, uh, especially in the process of preaching. I believe preaching is the function of making the church aware of the authority of the Word of God so that we might sit up, listen, and obey. And that doesn't mean obeying the preacher. It means obeying the counsel of the Word of God. So allow me to read the first uh, seven verses and then the very end of, uh, of John and we'll uh, launch into our exposition. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that, we, that he should be born blind? And Jesus said, neither did this man sin, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. We must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. Uh, Night cometh when no man can work. When I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground, made clay out of the spittle, anointed the eyes uh, of the blind man with the clay, And said unto him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means the scent pool. Uh, And he went away there and washed and came back seeing. Now let me take you down to the very end of the passage, at verse 35, uh, where the, the, the weight of this event comes home. Jesus had heard that they had cast him, the blind man, out uh, of the, the synagogue, um, finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he answered and said, uh, uh, And who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? Now this is the blind man who had just been healed by Jesus, is being asked, Do you believe in the Son of God? And he still doesn't quite get it. And he says, um, well, Yeah, I, I, but who is he? And then Jesus says this to him, and it's the key to the whole passage. You have both seen him, and it is he who now speaks to you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, for judgment came I into the world, that they uh, that see may not see, and that they uh, that uh, see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said unto him, Well, are you saying we're blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, 
your sin remains. Um, now, seeing is believing. Do you believe that? Seeing is believing. If I were to say to you that down on the Vetter River the other day, I caught a 25-pound coho, you would say to me, well, <laughs> show me. <laughs> and I would say, I'm sorry, but he got away. <laughs> but seeing is believing. We use our senses every single day of our lives. They help us navigate our world. We feel, we, we smell, we taste, we see, we hear. All of the senses are the way in which we make sense of our world. So to see is in a very real sense to believe. And in the scriptures, of course, there's a lot of talk about the use of our senses. Everywhere you go in the scriptures, it talks about our world as we perceive it through these senses. And believing or not believing, based on what we see, what we hear, what we touch, what we behold, right? But in every case in Scripture, what becomes really important is seeing and knowing on a different level than the ordinary use of our senses. Seeing and knowing on a different level than the ordinary use of our senses. So when someone says you have to see it to believe it, is it always the case that seeing is believing? Or is there a different level of seeing and touching and hearing and so on that God requires of us so that we might fulfill our faith? Now there's a couple of things you need to understand about John's gospel generally before we launch into the sermon here. First and foremost, as uh, St. Augustine once said, the Gospel of John is like a pool in which children may wade or elephants can swim. And what he means is that there's a level of simplicity that runs throughout the whole of John's Gospel that must be the prima facie, the very plain message of the Bible that we receive and on that level, that is all we really need. Everything we need is given in the simplicity of faith presented in John's gospel, which, by the way, has often been called the gospel of belief or the gospel of the evangelist. Why? Because all the way through John's gospel, we are being asked to believe the message of the gospel, to believe in Jesus Christ, to believe in the Son of God, to believe in the Messiah, to believe in the Son of Man, to believe in the Lord. Right? All of these titles. Do you believe in the Son of God? And Jesus keeps coming back to that message all the time. So faith in John's gospel is not just related to what we see and what we hear and what we understand in the ordinary sense of the term. There's something deeper that Jesus is always pointing to in every miracle that he performs, in every utterance that he makes, in every encounter that he has. You'll see it. Just read the gospel. 
Every single encounter, Jesus uses ordinary concepts like being born to bring Nicodemus to a different level or uh, the concept of truth to bring the Samaritan woman from a basic understanding of her religion to now a more profound sense of the living water that's available through Jesus. He does this here with the very same idea in mind. The blind man is delivered from his blindness in a twofold way. And that's the other thing you need to know about John's gospel. There's always a double meaning. There's always the ordinary meaning, and then above it, the spiritual meaning of the gospel. And of course, the twofold uh, event that the blind man experiences is not just delivery to him of his sight, his physical sight. I mean, I'm sure that's the first thing that overwhelmed him, and we're often overwhelmed by our senses, right? We don't often think of the spiritual level of things when we're assailed in our senses. As a matter of fact, one of my favorite stories is coming up for this Christmas season is uh, Charles Dickens' The Christmas Carol in the opening chapters. You remember Bob Marley's ghost comes to visit Scrooge, and Scrooge refuses to believe it. And Bob Marley says to him, why do you doubt your senses? And Scrooge says, because a bit of mustard, a blob of gravy can affect them. Indeed, there's more of gravy than of grave about you. And what does he mean? He means that the ordinary use of our senses is not something uh, that, that uh, or is something that can often affect the way we see things, the way we hear things, the way we understand things. You see, John's gospel wants to bring us along on the level of our understanding of faith in two ways. Number one, in terms of the simplicity and necessity of belief in Jesus Christ of Nazareth for the sake of our eternal life. And number two, to develop us and help us to grow and deepen in our spiritual understanding. That's the twofold message of John's gospel. That's what John is all about. Faith does not come easy in John's gospel. Every single encounter, the encounter with Nicodemus, Nicodemus has difficulty grasping the faith. The encounter with the woman at the well, she, she gets the whole thing confused and understood only on the physical level. What, you, you mean I wanted to come here and draw water again? Wow, give me some of that living water, you know. She misunderstood the nature of Jesus' message. And the very same thing happens here with the blind man. You notice that he receives his sight back. He goes on his way to cause an immediate uh, problem uh, with the, the leadership of the Jewish uh, people. And the Jews, by the way, in John's gospel have a very special place. They are the ones who often stand opposed to Jesus, fulfilling what John's gospel in the prologue says, that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. And so all the way through John's gospel, he's being opposed by his disciples, you see. But faith for the Christian in John's gospel has a deeper meaning. There are three principles that we need to understand that has to do with faith in John's gospel. Three basic principles. Here's the first one. 
First, faith for the Christian has only one concrete instance of physical demonstration. Faith for the Christian has only one concrete instance of physical demonstration. What do I mean? I mean simply this, that there's only one place in the Bible, one place in John's Gospel, where true faith must rest. It cannot rest on what you see. It cannot rest on what you hear. It cannot rest on what you feel, touch, and taste. It cannot rest on anything else other than this one concrete moment. Everything else in your life as a Christian relates to this moment. What is this moment? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only one from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only unique one from the Father, the only begotten one is often the translation, but it's better translated, the only unique one, the only one of his kind. And now here's the kicker. He has passed perfect in the original language, which means done, complete, the most absolute principle that you can establish. He has made him, God, known unto us. Now think about the language for a minute. That which, are, which we beheld, that which we have seen in the flesh, the one concrete moment of our faith, dear friends, is the historic incarnation of God in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, who is the Word become flesh, who shares with our humanity and brings into our humanity a connection with divinity that allows for, in the first time, and for the first time in history, an encounter between God and humanity that cannot be gainsaid, that cannot be denied. It is full of physical verifiability. Now that does not mean that you and I, this 2,000 years hence, or 2,000 plus years hence, can now in our own experience verify the same kind of tangibility that the disciples could, that they beheld him, that they saw him, that they understood him to be uh, the God incarnate, that they had uh, presented to their senses the fullness of the Godhead in Jesus Christ. There's a level at which, of course, we have to trust the witness to this historic incarnation, to this historic coming of Jesus Christ, who is God in the flesh. He is, all the way through John's Gospel, the very image of the Father. If you have seen me in John 10, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. And very clearly already in John chapter 1, verses eight, uh, 14 to 18, 
that he is the very express image of God the Father. That in him is contained the fullness of God's revelation to us, of the plan of redemption to us, of all that God plans for us, every bit of grace that comes to us. All by virtue of the faith that Jesus gives us in himself. He says all the way through the gospel, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He clearly indicates that he, and not some image that we might have in our minds, or not some experience that we might like to hold up as the ultimate experience, not any miracle, not any event in our lives surpasses the singularity of the principle that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, the very essence of God's meeting with us. The, as I say in my classes very often, the cosmic principle of the universe. The place in which the fullness of our, under, our humanity is met with the fullness of deity so that in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension and session at the right hand of the Father, there is the fullness of the representation of all our suffering, all our pain, all our difficulty, everything we feel, touch, taste. This side of eternity is already included in the humanity of Jesus, who, as God in the flesh stands for everything tangible and intangible in our lives. Everything else in your life takes second place to this moment. That's, that's the extraordinary thing about John's Gospel. A little while back, about two years ago, I was invited to write a, a major essay on John's Gospel because I've spent my lifetime studying this this uh, particular book. And so I'm having trouble, you know, confining myself to 30 minutes. But we'll do it. And in that essay, it, was, it came out in a book published by T.N.T. Clark, was edited by one of my colleagues on campus. I wrote a paper called Rumors of Glory, uh, The Problem of Faith and the Reception of John's Gospel in History. And my point was simply this. My whole point was simply this. That in John's gospel, everyone who comes to faith eventually has to rise to the level of Jesus' instruction and understanding of that faith. In the first 12 chapters of the gospel, it seems like only those who, the, 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 the only ones who follow Jesus, who actually believe in him, are those who do so through great difficulty in apprehending the faith. And more often than not, the crowds and the Jews which are two of the popular groups in John's Gospel, reject him or misidentify him or misunderstand the nature of the miracles. So you can see all the miracles you ever want in your life. But our faith is not based on such miracles. Our faith is not based upon the tangibility and verifiability of God as he presents himself to our senses in the moment. If you and I try to live that way, your Christianity will change from day to day. 
Our faith is rooted in a proclamation of the meeting of divinity and humanity in Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and it is him incarnate that we hold up. Again, one of the things I appreciate about our pastor is he's always pointing us to that principle of Jesus and the necessity of faith in that single principle. So if you're here today and you're wondering what we are about, that's what we are about. We know and understand that in an age in which we stand on the precipice of nuclear war, in an age in which we are trying to recover in every way, psychologically, economically, spiritually, from an assault upon our reality that constituted the last two and a half years, and continues, by the way, in various ways, that the one principle that will keep us centered and keep us here and keep these lights on is Jesus Christ incarnate, the one who stands between us and God as the guarantee of our faith. Everything else takes second place. So that's the first principle you need to understand about faith in John's gospel. Faith for the Christian has only one concrete instance of historical demonstration, physical demonstration. It is God incarnate in Jesus Christ. But secondly, faith requires of us a spiritual dimension that goes beyond the physical. Faith requires of us a spiritual dimension that goes beyond the physical. Again, this is a principle that we see throughout John's gospel. It truly is the secret of John's gospel. And that is that Jesus wants to take those who come to him and understand him and hear him and see him and even experience his miracle-working power, his demonstration of signs which demonstrate his glory. He wants to move them from their mere physical apprehension of these realities to the deeper spiritual meaning. Now, there are several groups in John's gospel you need to be aware of who fail on various levels to grasp the spiritual dimensions of faith. The Jews, it's a technical term that's used throughout John's gospel. They are the ones who always stand opposed to Jesus. They follow him everywhere. They ask him awkward questions. They accuse him. Uh, blasphemy, they accuse him of all kinds of things, and eventually they're involved in trying to, of course, have him crucified and ultimately do. They are, in John's gospel, the fundamental problem with faith in humanity. No matter what they see, no matter what they hear, no matter what Jesus says, they refuse to believe. And that's really indemnifying the first point. And that is that no matter how much we see and hear, it takes an act of God to bring us into faith. Jesus, in chapter 13 to 16 of the gospel, promises to the disciples uh, the, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, whom he would send, and they 
would then come to an understanding not only of their regenerate nature, which Jesus, through his death and resurrection, achieves for them, but they would also come to understand and be taught by that same spirit. And in chapter 21, Jesus breathes upon them before his departure, and they receive that Holy Spirit. And it is that spiritual dimension of the action of God by the Holy Spirit that brings us into an understanding of our faith, and not anything else. If we rely upon our senses, they will fail us every time. What we are called to rely upon is the action of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who confirms our hope, who spreads the love of God in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is seeing and believing on a different level. The disciples are in not much of a better situation, by the way, than the Jews. Although their faith is burgeoning, they're beginning to have faith, even right up to the end. The two uh, most significant disciples in John's gospel that have trouble with faith in Jesus are Peter and Andrew. Right? Peter doesn't, in the upper room, want Jesus to wash him Because he thinks somehow he's not worthy of it. He misunderstands the nature of what Jesus is doing uh, in washing the feet of the disciples. And Jesus says, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. And Peter, once the light dawns, you see, once the Spirit of God opens our hearts, he says, not just my feet, but my whole body. Because he all of a sudden realized that what Jesus was doing was not offering him the mere comfort of clean feet having trodden a dusty road on the way to the upper room. But that rather, what Jesus was offering him was revolutionary. It was faith affirming, faith realizing. So it's interesting because at chapter 12, the crowd and the Jews go one way and Jesus and the disciples go another way, namely to the upper room. And for the next uh, chapters 13 all the way through chapter 17, Jesus is bringing his disciples into a deeper spiritual understanding of the meaning of his life. We are never meant to stay in the absolute simplicity of our faith. Did you know that? We are never meant to remain babes in Christ. We are called to grow up into and onto our salvation. And that's what Jesus is doing in the upper room experience that the disciples are having as they are preparing for the Passover. Jesus is now taking all of the miracles that he performed up to chapter 12, all of the teaching, all of the encounters, all of the challenges to believe in him, the incarnate word of God, for the nature of faith, and he is now ingraining that and enshrining that in the hearts and minds of his disciples so that when he leaves, he will leave faithful and true witnesses to the gospel. 
And that's what we're called to be, faithful and true witnesses to the gospel. So faith is thus ultimately imparted by Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who realizes our faith. Now time doesn't permit today for me to talk to you about this in terms of the atoning work of Christ. How his obedience, uh, both as the Son of God and the Son of Man, both in his divinity and humanity, constitutes the, the guarantee of our capacity for faith and belief. But you can believe it. That when Paul says we are saved by the faith of Jesus Christ twice, Galatians 4 and Romans 3, he means that it is the humanity of Jesus that constitutes the basis of our faith. And he stands as a surety for us. So faith is ultimately imparted in John's gospel by Jesus himself. And this is why we're called to the spiritual disciplines. This is why we are called to read and meditate upon and understand the nature of Scripture, particularly the stories around Jesus and particularly John's Gospel, but all of Scripture. Because in and through it, God the Logos speaks to our hearts by the Holy Spirit and brings us into a maturity of faith that is always our destiny. So you see, faith for the Christian has only one concrete instance of physical demonstration. But it involves a spiritual dimension that goes beyond the mere physical and requires of us to be disciples of Jesus, seeking a deeper, fuller understanding. Because in it is a deeper, fuller understanding, not just of God, but of ourselves. Knowledge of God, knowledge of self are held together. Finally, and you're going to be relieved that I'm at the last point. Faith is a journey that requires spiritual sensitivity all along the line. Very often in Scripture you'll hear the phrase, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. This is, of course, recounted in another work of John, uh, Revelation, all of the Johannine passages talk about this. And what he means by it, and what is meant by it in Johannine literature, is that we have to listen more deeply than we do. We have to be spiritually attuned in a greater way than we make efforts to be. Especially in the times in which we live. Christianity, you see, stands on the precipice of being a historic and forgotten faith or a renewed and spiritual vitality and reality in the Western world. For the last 150 to 200 years, Western secularists have been working hard to destroy the Christian faith and its influence on the relative cultures that commonly known are, are known as Western culture. 
And there's a certain level at which we've already surrendered. That's another story for another time. But we are being called in our times to root ourselves so deeply in the incarnational event, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh, that we seek to know it in ever deeper ways. And we seek to be determined by it spiritually in our own time. Jesus says twice, and with this I'll close, Jesus says twice in the Gospel of John, what is the work that God requires? And twice he answers, that you believe in me. There is nothing else added to that list. It's absolutely simple and profound in the same instance. Jesus doesn't say that you believe in me and that you go to church every Sunday. That you believe in me and that you give all your treasures to the poor. That you believe in me and you do this or that. Or that you believe in me and you feel this way or that way. He doesn't add not a smidgen of human effort, of human emphasis on the physical, on the sensual. He simply says, the work of the gospel is that you believe in me. And he says to the blind man at the very end, do you believe in me? Do you believe in the Son of God? And he says, still not sure, even though he had received the miracle of his sight. He says, I, who? And Jesus says, I am he. The one you are seeing and the one you are hearing. The only thing you need for eternal life is that you believe. That you believe in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. And that has to be the clarion call for Christianity in the culture in which we live today. Thank you for the opportunity, Pastor. I'm sorry I went a little over time. It's been a singular privilege to be up here again. God bless you. Thanks for listening to our Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church, please check out sardisfellowship.com. Have a great day and God bless.